listeners, and thank you for tuning in to IRIS and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. It's Friday, December 23rd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's take a look at the weather forecast for today. This comes from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. The wind will continue to strengthen today, causing two issues. One that we will all feel will be those wind chills as low as minus 40. The other thing we'll notice is the blowing snow, likely leading to blizzard conditions in rural and other open areas. Be very cautious on area interstates and highways. This is one of those cases where impacts are much lower in town, but out of town, things can change very quickly. Cold, windy weather continues tonight and tomorrow, with lighter wind finally by Christmas Day. By Christmas night, a much weaker system might spread an inch or two of snow our way going into Monday morning. The sunrise this morning was at 7.32 a.m., and the sun sets at 4.39 p.m. Let's look at the stories we have on the front page of The Courier today. IHSAA ratings change backed. Favorite stories connect reporter. CFU urges conservation of natural gas. And let's begin reading Temps Fall with the Snow. Plunging temperatures bring snow and wind across the country, complicating holiday travel. This story was filed by the Associated Press. Dateline Mission, Kansas. Temperatures plunged far and fast Thursday as a winter storm struck ahead of Christmas weekend, bringing snow, ice, flooding, and powerful winds across a broad swath of the country and complicating holiday travel. The National Weather Service reported temperatures across the central high plains plummeted 50 degrees Fahrenheit in just a few hours. In much of the country, the Christmas weekend could be the coldest in decades. Quote, this is not like a snow day when you were a kid, President Joe Biden warned Thursday in the Oval Office after a briefing from federal officials. Quote, this is serious stuff. As of 7 a.m. Thursday, Waterloo had received 3.2 inches of snow, according to information from KWWL-TV. Cedar Falls received 2.5 inches. Hazardous weather conditions are expected in the Cedar Valley on Friday, according to the National Weather Service. Widespread blowing snow will create blizzard-like conditions. It will be partly sunny and cold with a high near minus 2 and wind chill values as low as negative 40. A west-northwest wind of 29 to 33 miles per hour will gust as high as 50 miles per hour. Blowing snow will continue Friday night with a low around minus 7 and wind chill values as low as minus 30. A west-northwest wind of 25 to 32 miles per hour will gust as high as 55 miles per hour. Areas of blowing snow will persist on Saturday. It will be sunny and cold with a high near 4 and a west-northwest wind of 25 to 28 miles per hour and gusts as high as 43. Saturday night will be mostly clear with a low around minus 8. Christmas Day will bring mostly sunny skies and a high near 7. There is a 30% chance of snow Sunday night with a low around negative 2. Things will warm up a bit Monday with partly sunny skies and a high near 15. 
The frigid air will move through the central United States to the east today, with wind-chilled advisories affecting about 135 million people over the coming days. Weather Service meteorologist Ashton Robinson Cook said Thursday, forecasters are expecting a bomb cyclone. When atmospheric pressure drops very quickly in a strong storm to develop near the Great Lakes, which will increase winds and create blizzard conditions, Cook said. Already, roads in rural stretches of western South Dakota were blocked, leaving people stranded with dwindling supplies of food and heating sources. Quote, it's just kind of scary for us here. We just kind of feel isolated and left out, unquote said Sean Bordeaux, a Democratic state lawmaker, who said he is running out of propane heat at his home near Mission on the Rosebud Indian Reservation because snowdrifts made it impossible for a delivery driver to supply him. In Texas, temperatures were expected to quickly plummet Thursday, but state leaders promised there wouldn't be a repeat of the February 2021 storm that overwhelmed the state's power grid and was blamed for hundreds of deaths. Governor Greg Abbott, in a news conference Wednesday, was confident the state could handle the increased demand for energy as the temperatures dropped. Quote, I think trust will be earned over the next few days, as people see that we have ultra-cold temperatures and the grid is going to be able to perform with ease, he said. The cold weather extended into El Paso and across the border into Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, where migrants have been camping outside or filling shelters as they wait a decision on whether the U.S. will lift restrictions that have prevented many from seeking asylum. Elsewhere in the U.S., authorities worried about the potential for power failures and warned people to take precautions to prevent older and homeless people and livestock and, if possible, to postpone travel. Quote, this event could be life-threatening if you are stranded with wind chills in the 30 to 45 below zero range, according to an online post by the National Weather Service in Minnesota, where transportation and patrol officials reported dozens of crashes and vehicles off the road. Michigan State Police prepared to deploy additional troopers to help motorists, and along Interstate 90 in northern Indiana, Crews were braced to clear as much as a foot of snow, as meteorologists warned of blizzard conditions there starting Thursday evening. About 150 National Guard members have also been deployed to help snowbound Indiana travelers. More than 17,000 flights have been canceled Thursday morning, within, in or out of the U.S., according to the tracking service FlightAware with Chicago O'Hare and Denver airports seeing the most. Freezing rain forced Delta to halt departures from its hub in Seattle. Amtrak, meanwhile, canceled service on more than 20 routes, primarily in the Midwest. Service between Chicago and Milwaukee, Chicago and Detroit, and St. Louis and Kansas City, Missouri, was suspended through Christmas Day. Some shelters in the Detroit area already were at capacity. The Detroit News reported the 140 beds at Cots, a family-only shelter in Detroit, were full. The facility is helping to make more room for others, though, spokesperson 
Aisha Morrow Ferguson told the newspaper on Wednesday, quote, We are not sending anyone back into this cold, Morrell Ferguson said. Quote, it does not matter if we have to pull out air mattresses. We are doing everything we can, looking at alternative spaces to support the needs that may arise. Unquote. In Montana, temperatures fell as low as 50 below zero at Elk Park, a mountain pass on the Continental Divide. Several ski areas announced closures Wednesday and Thursday because of the extreme cold and winds. Others scaled back offerings. Schools also closed and several thousand people lost power. In famously snowy Buffalo, New York, forecasters predicted a, quote, once-in-a-generation storm because of heavy lake-effect snow, wind gusts as high as 65 miles per hour, whiteouts, and the potential for extensive power outages. The NHL postponed the Buffalo Sabres home game against the Tampa Bay Lightning and rescheduled it for March 4th. Denver, also no stranger to winter storms, was the coldest it has been in 32 years on Thursday, when the temperature dropped to minus 24 in the morning at the airport. In Charleston, South Carolina, a coastal flood warning was in effect Thursday. The area, a popular tourist destination for its mild winters, braced for strong winds and freezing temperatures. The wintry weather extended into Canada, causing delays and cancellations earlier in the week at Vancouver International Airport. A major winter storm was expected Friday into Saturday in Toronto, where wind gusts as high as 60 miles per hour were predicted to cause blowing snow and limited visibility, Environment Canada said. Our next story was filed by Andy Malone, and it's titled, Cedar Falls Utilities asks customers to conserve natural gas at times of extreme cold temperatures. Dateline Cedar Falls. Extremely cold temperatures across the country have led Cedar Falls utilities to put out a call for customers to conserve their natural gas. That's because the higher demand to heat homes and other spaces means utilities pay more on the market for natural gas. Those price swings are passed on to the customers in the form of a variable charge seen on the monthly bill. Temperature lows are supposed to remain in the negative and single digits until Monday after Christmas, and it's almost certain there will be other times throughout the winter when the utility company will make the cost-saving suggestion. However, CFU General Manager Steve Bernard said Friday he's received indications recently that on Saturday prices may come back down to earth. Quote, it's interesting that the last two days the prices have been three times what they normally are, but they may come back down to what would be closer to normal and be a little bit more reasonable, Bernard said. There's never a simple answer as to why, but Bernard said states west of Iowa, especially west of the Rocky Mountains, may, quote, take some pressure off of us because of temperatures dropping out in those areas of the country. The setting on the thermostat can be the biggest determinant of the use of natural gas in communities, he noted. Quote, even turning the dial down a couple of degrees can be helpful if gone for the day at a relative's or friend's house, Bernard said. It's that time of year when people leave, and that can be a perfect opportunity to set it down maybe even 10 degrees. 
A few other advisements from the Municipal Utilities Company are to avoid the operation of gas fireplaces and other appliances such as garage or space heaters, as well as to check window latches, secure doors, and turn off ventilation fans after use. Bernard explained that each month the company purchases about 75% of its gas at fixed rates that protect it from the swings in prices. He also said Cedar Falls is a little more vulnerable to the temperature change because fewer local companies regularly use base amount of natural gas for manufacturing or industrial processes. CFU's message comes at a time when base rate hikes are set to take effect in January 1st for its electric, gas, and water services at 3%, 8%, and 9.5% respectively. Bernard described users of CFU's services as an engaged customer group. The utility doesn't see significant upticks in their daily peaks of electric usage, and the story is the same when it comes to the gas side. He believes many customers participate in cost-saving programs and use efficient equipment in their homes. Our next story is titled, Iowa High School Athletic Association Ratings Change Met with Support in Cedar Valley. Donald Promnitz wrote this story. Changes are coming to Iowa High School Athletic Association football, and schools in the Cedar Valley are getting ready for what those changes will bring. Earlier this month, the IHSAA Board of Control approved recommendations from its classification committee to adopt a new model that weighs socioeconomic factors in determining a school's enrollment for purposes of its class rating in football. The current system features six 11-player classifications and one 8-player classification. The proposed change will reduce a school's enrollment for football classification by 40% of its free or reduced price lunch count to determine classification. The model will apply to IHSAA football starting in the 2023-24 season. Iowa principals voted on the implementation from last Friday through Thursday. Quote, our schools have asked us to consider socioeconomic factors in classification in the IHSAA after much study and discussion is pleased to offer such a strategy. IHSAA Executive Director Tom Keating said in an official release, Football is the only sport where scheduling is decided by the IHSAA. Scheduling for all other sports is determined by the individual schools based on conference affiliation or agreement between non-conference schools. The measure received heavy support from schools overseen by the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Dubuque. It was approved by both Don Bosco High School in Gilbertville and Columbus Catholic High School in Waterloo. According to Don Bosco Principal Shelby Douglas, the measure is in line with Roman Catholic social teachings about equity and opportunity for others, prompting her to vote in favor. Quote, we believe fair socioeconomic opportunities for all is at the heart of this proposal from IHSAA, Douglas wrote in a news release. Quote, this movement must be extended beyond high school football and to something much more important, families having the ability to choose the school opportunity that best serves their child's unique needs, unquote. 
Columbus Catholic principal Tony Harrington also supported the new rating system. The changes likely will have little impact on the overall program, and Columbus will remain a 2A team in the 2023-24 season. Don Bosco will likely remain an eight-player football team. Likewise, the Waverly Shell Rock High School's Go Hawks expect to remain a 4A team next year. However, Athletic Director Greg Bodensteiner said the schedule will change. Waverly Shell Rock can expect suburban schools in the Des Moines area to be bumped up to 4A. This will, in turn, alter the geography of its schedule, taking the team south more often. Quote, some of those schools might be bumping up to 4A from 3A, which will change the landscape of district possibilities for us, Bodensteiner said. As long as district play's been around, it's been we either go east or we go west, and it's kind of rotated every two years, and there hasn't been a lot of change to that, unquote. The reason schools would be bumped up, he said, is there needs to be a certain number of schools in each class. If a 4A team is dropped to 3A, for example, another 3A school with a larger number of students would move up to take the reduced school's place. How their next season will look is still up in the air, but Bowden Steiner said the Gohawks welcome all challengers on any given Friday. Quote, I think it would be fun for our community and our football program if there were some new blood injected into 4A, Bowden Steiner said. Quote, and maybe it allows for more changes every two years, where you get a wider variety of teams you get to play, unquote. Next, we have a story filed by Maria Cooper, Favorite Stories Connect Reporter. People met on the job inspired Maria Cooper. During the past seven months of working at The Courier, the things I have come to cherish the most are not the stories I've written, but the connections I've made with the people who call this place home. I grew up in Waverly, so I came to the newspaper with prior knowledge of the area and its residents. The main reason I wanted to work here is to tell people stories. One of the first stories I've discovered was in May about Paradise Estates being built in Orange Township next to Orange Elementary School. We received a tip about worries from the Neighborhood Association. I drove around with the president of the association, Mike Henning, and he pointed out to me all the issues that would arise if houses were built, such as safety hazards and a loss of his small neighborhood feel. He and his wife invited me into their house to discuss the history of the township, and I felt such gratitude that someone would trust me with telling their story. Waterloo Woman Teaches How to Care for Black Hair. Another person I'm thankful for letting me tell their story is Shar Rorda, who is the author of Puffy Hair Everywhere. She teaches black people how to care for their hair. She's also the owner of a multicultural salon, a little buzzed, in downtown Waterloo. She opened up a whole world to me that I knew existed, but I didn't fully understand. Hearing her first-hand experiences about being black in a predominantly white community will stick with me for a long time. Payne AME Church hosts school clothing giveaway. One connection I'll cherish is meeting Carmen Teague, who helped organize a uniform drive at Payne AME Church in Waterloo. Her selfishness to provide clothes for those in need 
was awe-inspiring. I'll never forget her rounding up her entire family to take a photo of me in front of the fire truck to get it in the paper. Community helps build hub for growing crops. I've realized many of the churches in the area have great stories to provide. One of those is Antioch Baptist Church, which, along with the community, helped build a seasonal high tunnel system to grow fresh fruits and vegetables. The Reverend Charles Daniel worked with James Bunch and Hip Hop Farmers, a Tennessee organization, to build the structure in a day. Seeing the community work together in the hope of creating unity is something I found inspiring in Waterloo. Waterloo City Council attempts to curb gun violence through task force. As a city government reporter, I couldn't leave out a story that connects the city council to the community. During the summer, the council passed two resolutions in an effort to curb gun violence across the community. Waterloo has seen a number of homicides that involved guns this year, and the community has been demanding it stop. I got to walk in a peace march that involved local residents, churches, and the Waterloo Police Department. Walking through the neighborhood where the most recent murder had happened was chilling. Now, let's turn the page twice to get to the Cedar Valley section, and the story, Michelle Sweeney, civil engineer, enjoys job flexibility working with public on projects. This story was filed by David Promnitz. Dateline, Waterloo. A lot of people take pride in their work, but not everyone can also take their children to see the result of what they do every day. Quote, that's definitely one of my favorite things to do, is being able to take my kids to a construction site and show them something that I'm designing and working on, Michelle Sweeney said. As the senior project manager for the Waterloo branch of AECOM, she has had many opportunities to do that. At 37, she's been the project leader for the $38 million University Avenue reconstruction in Waterloo and the Iowa Highway 58 Viking Road interchange and Viking Road widening in Cedar Falls, including the Prairie Lakes Trail underpass. Her fingerprints can also be found on the Cedar Falls Mayor's Pedestrian Bridge, the trail underpass along Green Hill Road, the National Cattle Congress Sanitary Sewer, and the Waterloo Center for the Arts. Sweeney has been named to the 2022 class of 20 under 40 honorees. She doesn't always get the flashiest assignments, but likes the change-ups that the job brings. It keeps her on her toes, she said, and stops her from being bored. Quote, I like the diversity in what I do. I like going from working on a $40 million interchange to working on a small ADA-compliant sidewalk, Sweeney said, referencing the Americans with Disabilities Act. Quote, I also like working with the public. I like working with them on how we can make them better because, to be honest, the general public in the end is the user of these corridors and these projects, unquote. Always adept with numbers, Sweeney first got the engineering bug when she was studying at Don Bosco High School in Gilbertville. The career path was suggested to her by her math teacher, Roger Hahn. She went to engineering camps at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville and Iowa State University in Ames, eventually studying and graduating from the latter. While doing these camps, she learned the different engineering disciplines from electrical to aerospace, 
However, it was the civil engineering that Sweeney found her calling. Quote, the thing I liked about civil engineering, and the thing I like about what I do, is I like the outside aspect. I get to not only design my projects, but I also get to go out to the field and assist in construction by administering the contracts with my clients. So that's what I like. I like the flexibility of being outside and inside, unquote. When she's not working in engineering, Sweeney is spending time with her three children and volunteering for various charity groups around the Cedar Valley. These include board memberships in the Waterloo Kiwanis Club and work with Irish Fest, the Salvation Army, Adopt-A-Family, and the St. Anthanasius School in Jessup, where she sat on the board. She also volunteers for her church and the Buchanan County Fair. Alongside her community work, Sweeney has taken a keen interest in the direction of her field and its future. She's an advisory committee member for the Hawkeye Community College Engineering Tech Program, a committee member for the Women's Transportation Seminar, and a board member for the Iowa Statewide Urban Design and Specifications. Her efforts haven't been lost on Doug Schindel, an area operations manager for AECOM. He cited her professionalism and commitment along with the work she does around the community. Quote, Michelle Sweeney is an excellent candidate because of her dedication to her profession, volunteer activities, and commitment to the Cedar Valley, unquote. Schindel wrote in his nomination, quote, her enthusiasm, hard work ethic, and positive attitude are the traits that have made her successful, unquote. Next, we have a story filed by Andy Malone, drafting of Waverly's new comprehensive parks, bike plans, nears completion, Dateline Waverly. Municipal planning documents are being finalized with the future of the community in mind. City officials have been working on a comprehensive plan, park and open space plan, and bike, pedestrian, and trail plan with MSA Professional Services during the last year. In the first City Council update since the summer, MSA planner Christopher Jansen said the Planning and Zoning Commission is scheduled to have a joint meeting on January 5th with the Economic Development Commission and Board of Adjustment to discuss plans further and consider a recommendation. The Council will take its final look January 23rd and proceed to weigh adoption on February 6th. Jansen noted the future land use map included within the plans is important but, quote, not all that many people are excited about it, and it is valuable to have other components that spurred public participation. Quote, people love talking about parks, and people love talking about trails, and they love looking at how they are going to be integrated into the community, he said. Quote, I think putting these three plans together, as you did, was fantastic, in the sense we get a lot of cross-feedback, he added. MSA included a development concept for the future of Memorial Park along 5th Avenue Southwest. It includes a new pool, natural play area, performance space, and golf learning center, along with where ballparks could be expanded. Quote, there have been adjustments. The first rendition of this had a pool in a way that might conflict with the golf course's hole number three. And people who are as good at golf as me 
where the ball sometimes doesn't go exactly where I thought I wanted it to, said Jansen. We situated it so two uses of the same space are not directly impacting one another, unquote. During the process, the conversations also centered heavily on other big-name projects like those pertaining to the rail trail bridges. Jansen said the plans were similar in that professionals tried not to overload the readers and users of them. Quote, it was not just this giant list of stuff to do, he said. We know that you guys, city officials, do actively plan, and you're going to look at this stuff in another five years. So putting together 20 years' worth of small things is not going to be as useful as some targeted action that can be taken in the short term, unquote. The latest drafts can be reviewed online at waverlyplanning.com. And now, listeners, at this time, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, December 23rd on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Waterloo. Donald Donnie D. Griffith was born on June 1, 1956, in Waterloo, Iowa, to his parents Donald G. and LaVon Bussey Griffith. Growing up, Donnie faced many physical and mental challenges, but was able to live a fairly fulfilling life. He attended River Hills School in Cedar Falls, graduating in 1977. For many years, Donnie was part of a group home of EPI, and when he needed more skilled care, he moved to County View, now known as Pillar of Cedar Valley, in Waterloo, where the residents and his caregiver have been like family to him. For many years, Donnie worked at Area 7 in Waterloo, where he worked doing various projects. He loved singing and telling jokes, and was an avid dog lover, and was a former bowler for the Special Olympics. Donnie was a bright light to many, and brought joy to those around him. He will be dearly missed by his family and his pillar community. A memorial service for Donnie will be held on Wednesday, December 28th at 10.30 a.m. at Pillar of Cedar Valley, 1410 West Dunkerton Road, Waterloo, Iowa, 50703. Inurnment will be held privately by the family at a later date. Memorials may be directed to River Hill School, 2700 Grand Boulevard, Cedar Falls, Iowa, 50613. Locke Funeral Home at Tower Park in Waterloo is caring for Donnie and his family. For memories of Donnie or messages of condolence, please visit www.lockfuneralservices.com. Warren Wagner was born February 9, 1943, in Vinton, Iowa, the son of Albert and Margaret Bolshe Wagner. He attended school in Dysart. After high school, he entered the United States Air Force and worked as a mechanic. Warren married Mary Womack on May 17, 1980, at the Dysart United Methodist Church. He worked at Luz Manufacturing, then at Hanson Motors in the Ford Garage, as an auto mechanic. Warren then was the transportation director for the Dysart schools. He enjoyed fishing with his friends, watching Hawkeyes on TV, 
especially football and basketball, and in later years, walking his dog. Warren was a volunteer as an EMT with the Dysart Ambulance and was a member of the Dysart American Legion. He also was a pilot and flew his own plane. Warren was an avid bird feeder and cheesecake eater. Warren passed away on Sunday, December 18, 2022, at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital at the age of 79. A visitation for Warren will be on Tuesday, December 27, 2022, from 9.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. at Dysart United Methodist Church, 602 Tilford Street in Dysart. The services will be held on Tuesday, December 27th at 10.30 a.m. at Dysart United Methodist Church, 602 Tilford Street, Dysart. Burial is at Dysart Cemetery with military rites by the Dysart American Legion. Arrangements are with Overton Funeral Home, 707 Clark Street in Dysart, Iowa. Their phone number is area code 319-476-7355. Condolences may be left at www.overtonfuneralhomes.com. LaPorte City Marjorie Jean Kowalski, 88, of LaPorte City, died Friday, December 16, 2022, at Mercy One ICU in Des Moines, Iowa. She was born July 7, 1934, on their farm outside of Tripola, the daughter of Clarence and Elfrida Oltragi. She was a 1952 graduate of Tripola High School. Marjorie was united in marriage to Dalton Kowalski on March 14, 1954, at Crane Creek Church in Tripola. She worked for several attorney's offices as a legal secretary, including the Robertson Law Firm, Michael Buckner Law Firm, and lastly at Ball Kirk Home in Nardini in Waterloo, Iowa where she continued to assist Mr. Buckner. Marjorie loved her family, faith, being outdoors, working in her vegetable garden and flower gardens. She also enjoyed entertaining family with large, very delicious meals on special occasions and holidays. A visitation for Marjorie will be between 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock p.m. on Monday, December 26, 2022, at the American Lutheran Church, in LaPorte City, and Tuesday one hour prior to the service. Her service will be at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, December 27th, at the American Lutheran Church in LaPorte City. Memorials may be directed to the American Lutheran Church. Locke in LaPorte City is in charge of arrangements. Their website is at www.lockfuneralservices.com. Now, let's turn to the opinion section. This editorial came from the Storm Lake Times pilot, editor Art Collin, and it is titled, Families in Transit. Just when I'm supposed to write the annual holiday letter, this Venezuelan family comes on CNN after traversing the Rio Grande for El Paso. A man and a pregnant woman, a child in tow, crossed the cobblestone walkway through the shallows in search of some sort of peace. She gave birth to a girl shortly after crossing. Of course, the Christmas story is that of a family in transit and fear, because Mary and Joseph know what's at stake. So do the Venezuelans. They get to New York, 
and sleep in a shelter, and he goes to work. There was no room at the inn for Mary and Joseph, but someone with a manger showed them a little heart, just like the New Yorkers sheltering refugees from terror and famine, or Storm Lake. Mr. Goodfellow wandered into my mind, and the Adopt-A-Family program. Mr. Goodfellow provides winter clothing for children who need it through generous donations from Times Pilot readers. Upper Des Moines Opportunity and the Times Pilot connect readers to the needy during the holidays through the Adopt-A-Family program. The beneficiaries are mainly the children of immigrants, very much like the Venezuelan family. The donors know it. They are generous as ever. Storm Lakers have supported Mr. Goodfellow for nearly a century. They have always wanted to do good to help the less fortunate. The school staff knows who needs what. They get it for them. Donations through Adopt-A-Family help Cubans get settled in the land of the free, where it's awfully cold. The Venezuelan father is glad to have a job and a chance at refuge. We're glad that people like him end up in Storm Lake with the sole hope of building a future for their children. The theme is inescapable this time of year. It is lost on few of us. Decency remains the standard here to help people catch a break, no matter the politics of the hour. You wish that there are no need for Upper Des Moines in such a garden spot as Storm Lake, but there is, and it finds support. Down deep, there's a spirit that opens our place to the stranger, who is familiar by now. It's a place to warm yourself against the freezing rain and that howling wind around. You wonder if democracy can hold. It does. You wonder if freedom still rings. Ask the Cuban. You think you might not make it through last December. And then the saints answer. I think I believe that. You have to hit me over the head for a long time. The family as well as can be. John remains the smartest man in any room. Thank God he does not fish or golf. Kieran is slated to get married this summer, and Holly is a delight. Claire is editing for the Cedar Rapids Gazette, remotely from Chicago, through the wonders of modern technology. Ripping up the town with roommate and cousin, Hope Cullen. Joe fiddles in Las Vegas and lives the life of a rover. Tom churns out copy like a machine. Dolores works, works like a good Borman should, and, as always, keeps things on keel. Peach wags her tail. Storm Lake is growing and fairly healthy. If you want a job, there is one. It's about as interesting a place as you'll find two hours from any place. It's easy. They plow the snow well. Seldom does the power go out. The Wi-Fi signal is decent. Rent is pretty cheap. And so is the pork. Buena Vista University is hanging in there against all odds. Those pelicans around Ice House Island were something else. If you can put the politics out of your head that Herod is after your firstborn, you can be struck by the wonder of it. That the Christmas story plays out in the here and now with a winter snowsuit for a boy who didn't have one. With a helping hand and good work, the family will be able to buy their own next year. That's the hope. It's something to hang on to. It can all work out here, where a family in transit can find home again. Art Cullen is the publisher and editor of the Storm Lake Times Pilot. Next, we have an editorial first published in the Storm Lake Times Pilot and written by Art Cullen. The title is Surging Farm Prices. 
The surge in Iowa farmland prices that continued into this year is driven by many factors. Cash on hand, relatively low interest rates, strong commodity markets, continued federal support, and increasing interest among private equity investors. Iowa State University's annual survey of farm brokers and auctioneers showed a 17% average increase in farm prices following a 32% jump the year before. This is all reflected in regional sales that have reached $30,000 per acre. Those surveyed believe that farmland prices will increase again next year. Established farmers have been able to bank cash from profligate federal payments during the Trump administration, totaling $100 billion over three years to cover costs of starting a trade war with China. With a truce declared, trade resumed and markets soared. Despite higher input costs, net farm income has been strong on higher prices and tremendous yields, and the USDA forecasts another positive year in 2023. Agland prices have been seemingly immune from steadily rising interest rates, as these purchases have not been heavily leveraged by debt. It's a key difference from the inflated market of the 1980s, driven by debt against land, that crashed when interest rates climbed to 20%. Nobody is imagining 20% interest rates at this point. Now, big private equity funds are showing up at the auctions and bidding against locals. Bill Gates is America's largest ag land owner. Arkansas equity funds are in the game in northwest Iowa. Politicians in South Dakota are talking about banning outside corporate investors from owning farmland. What does the smart money see? Drought across the plains and west that intends to hang around, and less prime land with adequate moisture. Agriculture is moving north and to where the water is. Increasing food demand worldwide and a changing climate establishes conditions for rising prices across the sector. Climate drives conflict that imperils food security. The primary reason for mass migration from Central America to the USA is drought and crop failure, followed by conflict and government repression. Demand for soybeans in Asia is clearing the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. We know that investors factor all this in. They have told us so. A new farm bill, no doubt, will contain a strong crop insurance program to put a floor under the land market. Quote, climate smart ag payments for conservation work are increasing as well. What goes up certainly can come down. Inflation appears to be ebbing as the aftershocks of the pandemic's shutdown ripple and fade. What's going on in land markets is probably something more. A recognition of finite resources increasingly concentrated in the upper Midwest. It's true that government largesse fueled the flames. It also is evident that increasing food demand is challenging a production system to its limits, which close in amid an environment of extremity and uncertainty. Commodity markets reflect it, so do auctions. Next, we have an editorial from the New York Times titled, The Last Lesson of the January 6th Committee. This was written by the Times Editorial Board. The hearings of the House Select Committee on the January 6th attack on the Capitol presented a careful, convincing, 
and disturbing account of Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. They provided an abundance of detail about what we've long known, that Mr. Trump and his allies engaged in an assault not only on Congress, but also on democracy itself. The work done by the committee over the past 18 months may be even more important than its report, which is expected to be released Thursday. The months of scouring investigation and the carefully staged hearings in which the evidence of Mr. Trump's malfeasance was presented to the public were critical elements in the nation's full understanding of the attack on the Capitol. Through the work of these hearings, Congress showed that the best possible answer to political violence lay in the tools that were right at hand, the rule of law, checks and balances, testimony given under oath, and the careful process of bureaucracy. Like a slow-motion replay, the committee's work also gave Americans a second chance to comprehend the enormity of what transpired on January 6th. It seems plausible, as some members of the panel have asserted, that the hearings made protecting democracy a significant issue in the midterm elections and helped persuade voters to reject some election deniers who ran for state offices. The sustained attention on Mr. Trump's conduct in his final days in office is also valuable as he mounts a renewed campaign for the presidency, and the hearings focus the attention of the public and policymakers on the extremist groups that participated in the attack on the Capitol and that pose a threat of renewed violence. Congressional hearings are often filled with the distraction of partisan squabbling, grandstanding, and detours into tangential subjects. But the January 6th committee was different and the American people were better off for it. Mr. Trump and others refused to answer subpoenas from the committee, which would have given them an opportunity to answer questions and make their case. Their refusal is unfortunate. They deserve the chance to defend themselves and present their account of the facts, and Americans deserve a chance to hear from them. They're still due that chance, and Mr. Trump may still have his say in the court of law. The seven Democrats and two Republicans who served on the committee captured the attention of Americans who may not have been sufficiently informed or alarmed about Mr. Trump's role in the events of January 6th to take notice. The two Republicans, Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, deserve particular credit for defying their party to participate. Their presence and the damning testimony delivered by Mr. Trump's aides and allies conveyed the message that some things are necessarily more important than loyalty to a political party. Americans have also learned, thanks to these hearings, exactly how close this country came to even greater tragedies. Rioters came within 40 feet of Vice President Mike Pence. A Justice Department official, Jeffrey Clark, in the late December 2020, sought to send a letter, based on lies, to officials in Georgia and potentially several other key states that warned of election irregularities and called for a special legislative session to select alternate slates of presidential electors. The lesson, in part, is that our democracy is inescapably fragile. It requires Americans and those who serve them as elected officials and in law enforcement 
to act in good faith. The committee rightly spent many hours of its work documenting the actions of all those local, state, and federal officials who defied Mr. Trump's demands and acted in many different ways to protect democracy. The dangers remain clear and present, so this work is not complete. House Republicans will be in the majority come January, including many who sought to overturn President Biden's victory and some who encouraged the rioters. Political violence is on the rise, especially among right-wing extremists. And Mr. Trump is running for president again on a platform of his grievances, still insistent that he did not lose the last election, still refusing to accept the rule of law. He is, in fact, escalating his rhetoric. The nation needs to respond to these threats. Congress needs to pass the reforms to the electoral process that are included in the year-end omnibus spending bill. Law enforcement can do more to crack down on extremist violence. Voters should reject Mr. Trump at the polls. As the select committee's chairman, Representative Benny Thompson, a Democrat of Mississippi, emphasized at its final hearing on Monday, the government should continue to pursue those responsible for the January 6th attack and to hold them accountable. More than 900 people already have been charged with crimes related to the attack on the Capitol, and several hundred of those have been convicted or pleaded guilty. Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the extremist Oath Keepers group, was convicted of seditious conspiracy in November. Jury selection has begun in the federal trial of Enrique Tarrio, a former leader of the Proud Boys, another extremist group who faces similar charges. The committee called on the Justice Department to also bring criminal charges against Mr. Trump and the lawyer John Eastman for their efforts to overturn the 2020 election, including Mr. Trump's role in the January 6th attack. The Justice Department is still engaged in its own investigation. As we wrote in August, if there is sufficient evidence to establish Mr. Trump's guilt on a serious charge in a court of law, then he should be charged and tried. The same goes for all of the others whom the committee referred to the Justice Department. Mr. Thompson, urging action on all those fronts, said that as a nation, quote, we remain in strange and uncharted waters, unquote. Yet the hearings also underscored that the country is better off with clarity and truth. Now let's return to local news from the Courier. Charles City Man sentenced for drugs and guns. Suspect was linked to explosive devices. Dateline Charles City. One person connected with bombs set off in Charles City in the summer of 2020, damaging structures, has been sentenced to prison. Judge C.J. Williams sentenced Cody Robert Winters, 34, to five years on charges of distribution of methamphetamine and drug user in possession of a firearm. Following prison, Winters will be on supervised release for five years. Another person charged in the indictment is 34-year-old Thomas J. Downer, and he pleaded to charges of prohibited person in possession of a firearm, possession of an unregistered destructive device, and distribution of meth. He is awaiting sentencing. Court records allege Winters and Downer sold ice meth in Iowa in 2020. Winter also made bombs using cardboard tubes, cannon fuses, 
explosive powders, and shrapnel. He allegedly also taught Downer to make explosives. One of the explosives was set off in the Charles City neighborhood on June 25, 2020, causing damage, according to court records. The Charles City police log from that day shows neighbors called 911 around 11.30 p.m. to report the sound of a loud explosion. About 15 minutes later, police were called to the 1200 block of F Street for damage to two homes and a vehicle that was caused by an unknown device, according to the log. Damage was estimated at $2,500. On November 13, 2020, authorities executed a search warrant at Winter's home and found a Diamondback AR-15 rifle, a 12-gauge Mossberg 835 shotgun, and a 9mm Taurus pistol. Prosecutors also allege that Downer possessed five pipe bombs on October 30, 2020. Next, in a story filed by Jeff Reinitz, man awaiting trial for theft and guns allegedly brings stolen guns to pre-trial appointment, Waterloo. A Waterloo man who was free while awaiting trial for gun and theft charges is back in jail after he allegedly brought a stolen pistol to an appointment with corrections officials. According to police, Isaiah Anthony Anderson, 18, set off a metal detector when he showed up for his appointment at the Waterloo Residential Correctional Center on East 6th Street around 12.25 p.m. on Wednesday. Officials recovered a 22 caliber Ruger SR handgun from his coat, and police determined the weapon had been reported stolen in Waterloo in 2020. Anderson was arrested for fourth-degree theft for the stolen gun, and bond was set at $100,000. Court records show Anderson is awaiting trial for several different cases, including an August 6th indictment in which he was arrested for reckless use of a firearm for firing a 40 caliber pistol in an alley behind the 200 block of Reber Avenue, stealing a Chevrolet Silverado pickup truck and a Ford Edge in July, and breaking into vehicles parked outside Planet Fitness in July. Next, a reward is offered for the driver in a fatal Chickasaw County crash, filed by Jeff Reinitz, Dateline West Union. Crime Stoppers is offering a reward for a West Union man who was behind the wheel in a September police chase that ended in a crash that killed his teenage son. In a post issued Thursday, Cedar Valley Crime Stoppers announced it is offering a cash reward for information leading to the arrest of Curtis Allen Williams. Williams, 38, is wanted for alleged parole violations in connection with a 2012 kidnapping case in Fayette County. Court records allege Williams was on parole in that case when he refused to pull over for a sheriff deputy who spotted him speeding in Chickasaw County on September 26, 2022. The incident turned into a pursuit that reached speeds up to 105 miles per hour. His vehicle crashed and rolled at a U.S. Highway 63 off-ramp, fatally injuring 18-year-old Jackson Williams of Decorah. Officers at the crash scene reported smelling alcohol and a container of twisted tea was found in the vehicle. A blood sample was sent to the state crime lab for analysis 
according to court records. No charges have been filed in the fatal collision, and the crash remains under investigation. Meanwhile, corrections officials applied for a parole violation warrant, and Curtis Williams was put on absconded status when he failed to show up for appointments with his parole officer. A judge in Winnesheek County also issued a bench warrant when Curtis Williams missed a court date for an operating while intoxicated charge from a July traffic stop in Decorah. Court records show Curtis Williams had also disappeared 10 years ago following the kidnapping incident. He was finally detained in Louisiana and returned to Iowa. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, December 23rd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember that you can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. 